Thank you so much for that reading and good morning to you once again. It is such an encouragement uh, to be here with you, to start this new year with you, uh, and to see how you continue to grow and develop and mature as a church. Uh, such a thrill um, to me to see that. Why don't we pray as we turn our minds towards God's Word? Our Heavenly Father, we long to hear not just a whisper, but your voice addressing us today. Thank you that as we hear the Scriptures as we've just done, as we reflect on them, ponder them, ask you to speak to us through them in the power of the Spirit. We have confidence that you do exactly that. Please would you change our minds and our hearts where they need to be changed. Encourage us and assure us where we need those things. Challenge us where we need a challenge. Humble our minds before your living word. Amen. Well, you've heard a little bit about how my 2019 has been, a little bit at least. Uh, how was it for you? How was this year just gone by? I don't mean in a general sense. What I mean is, I, I guess, how things turned out for you spiritually. Uh, did things happen as you hoped they might? I hope it was a great year for you. Uh, but I have to say that for me, as I look back on the last year, in fact, I look back on the last several years, I, I, I typically come to the end of a year like, like, like this and it feels like there's been at least as much discouragement and disappointment as there has been encouragement. Can you identify with that kind of mix in your own life? What I mean is, more specifically, I can think of a number of times when I've seen what looks like an amazing work of God and I've said to myself, this is the game changer that I've been waiting for. Big things are going to happen now. We're going to see people waking up to God in real numbers now. How could they not, given what they've just seen, what's just happened? But here we are at the end of another year, and the truth is, barely anything seems to have come long-lasting from that thing. So discouraging. Well, there are other times when I've prayed into a particular situation with confidence. I've reminded myself of those words of the Lord Jesus, ask and you will receive. Seek and you shall find. I, I, I've prayed, I've waited for the answer, and it's just not come. It's like I never even prayed. Were you even listening, God? leaves you spiritually flat on the floor, doesn't it? That kind of experience. Or again, there are those times when I've got excited at the prospect of God using me to bring a spiritual new start to somebody. I, I, I've taken a risk, I've begun a conversation or issued an invitation, wondered if I might get, God, get, get to see God building his kingdom through me. 
But all that conversation or that encounter or whatever it was seemed to result in, in the end, was that person being pushed away from God rather than drawing him close. So much for me being used by God. Just left thinking, what was the point of that? These kinds of spiritual disappointments, they're not uncommon, are they? They just leave you feeling so flat. Please tell me you know what I'm talking about here. It's not just me, is it? At times like that, it's wonderful to have other Christian believers at hand. They can encourage you and spur you on. They can point you back to the promises of God. They can remind you of other times and other places where there has been more obvious sign of, uh, signs of God at work. But there is a bigger question here. What should our level of expectations be? So we start this new year, 2020. To what extent should I expect to see God work in powerful and dramatic ways around me? Now, there are certainly Christians and Christian subcultures and churches where there is a real confidence that any moment now God is going to act and act powerfully. They bring that positivity to their expectations, to their prayers, to their outreach, to their whole spirituality. They may not know what God is going to do, but whatever it is, it's going to be big. God's about to do his thing any moment. It's very attractive, that kind of spiritual optimism, isn't it? Especially if you're like me and you are actually an optimist deep down. We find ourselves almost envying that level of expectancy. We want a piece of what they've got. In that Bible passage, though, that was just read to us, we saw one of the most dramatic displays of God's power in the entire Bible leading to absolutely nothing in terms of fruit. Precisely zero effect. We saw one of the most highly respected prayer warriors in the Bible praying a heartfelt prayer and God didn't even acknowledge it, let alone answer it. We saw one of the most power, powerful and fearless spokespersons for God in the whole Bible being told he's largely just going to push people away from God. That'll be what his ministry accomplishes. It was a story of hopes getting dashed, and expectations getting disappointed, of the bubble of spiritual optimism being burst. And yet, it's the Word of God for us at the beginning of this new year. 
So let's have a look together at uh, 1 Kings 19. Uh, there are a number of uh, scenes in the story here. At heart, it seems to me, there are basically two main acts. Act 1 shows us the servant of God disappointed. The servant of God disappointed. Look at the uh, start of the chapter there. I don't know exactly what Elijah expected after the, uh, the, the drama of Mount Carmel. I'm pretty sure it wasn't this, though. Uh, meet Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. Uh, she was noticeable by her absence uh, at Carmel, uh, the previous chapter. Uh, FOMO doesn't seem to have been part of her vocabulary. She stayed home for that event. And uh, when Ahab gets back... He has to catch her up on what she's missed. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. That is presumably how he had spectacularly demonstrated the total supremacy of the Lord, the God of Israel, over Baal. And yes, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So, verse 2, how does Jezebel react? So Jezebel tore her clothes and wept. She forsook Baal and bowed her knee to Yahweh that day. She and Ahab said together, from this day forth, Yahweh will be the God of our household and the God of Israel. And all Israel said, hurrah for Yahweh, and they all lived happily ever after. It's all right, uh, you haven't lost the page. It's not actually what it says, is it? But after the Mount Carmel experience, it's almost what you expect to read, isn't it? And maybe not the happily ever after bit, but surely the only logical response to what had happened in chapter 18 is the royal household and the, the, whole, the whole nation repenting, giving up their idolatry, coming back to God. And yet... It's not what happens, is it? Instead, Jezebel digs in. Elijah, she decides, must die. And the sooner the better. Verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Well, Elijah is just floored by this. Sent into a complete tailspin. Have a look. Uh, for one thing, he's, he's terrified. Verse 3, he ran for his life. And Jezebel is someone you tend not to mess with, even on a good day, but now it's even more serious. She's effectively put a contract out on Elijah's life. It's a strange set of events. Well, she's the one who ought to be terrified after Carmel. But it turns out she's even more spiritually thick-skinned than he thought. And so it's he, Elijah, who was left running for his life. Head south to Judah, the southern kingdom. If you've ever played a wide game or something like that, you know what he's doing. He's standing on home base in the safety zone, away from the jurisdiction of Jezebel, somewhere he can't be got because he's afraid. And then again, he's despairing. Verse 4, he heads out into the wilderness and prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. That, by the way, is 
the prayer that God refuses to answer. But you can understand how Elijah gets to this point. Now, people have asked many times over the years all sorts of questions about Elijah's uh, his mental health. And yes, it does seem like he's come unusually quickly to the brink of suicide. But consider for a moment, everything he's worked for has come to nothing, hasn't it? Now, what more can he do? What future is there for him? May as well just end it here and now. Do you see how despair actually seems almost the logical response to his situation? He's fearful. He's despairing. Then also he's just plain exhausted. Verse 5, he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. The, the physical demands of running away for days has, has caught up with him. The adrenaline's been pumping but now he's on safe ground. He's come down. And the emotional trauma of it all just catches up with him. The gutsiness of that confrontation with, with Ahab. The, the euphoria of Carmel. And now the, the panic of the death threat. The bleakness of the outlook. No wonder he needs a kick. He's exhausted. And he feels totally isolated. Look down to verse 10. God's angel appears to him and asks for a status update. Listen to the tone of his reply. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Alone, friendless, cut off. Nobody to share the load with. Nobody who understands. You want a status report? Well, that's it. I'm on my own. Got nobody. And there's even a sense that he's spiritually abandoned. For a moment, at least. Halfway through verse 11, Elijah comes face to face with uh, the classic markers of God coming to his people. A powerful wind... An earthquake, a fire. Ah, this, this is more like it. Surely this must be God showing himself to Elijah. But no, God was not in the wind, we're told. Not in the earthquake. Not even in the fire, as he had been just days ago on Mount Carmel. Well, where is he then? Is he, is he gone? It certainly feels like it. So here is act one of the story. The Lord's servant, disappointed. And as I hinted out earlier on, there have been many, many of the Lord's servants since that time who've got to just this same place. Maybe by a different route to Elijah, maybe expressed in a different way, but that's the place they've got themselves to. Disappointed. I take it most of us know from experience what it's like to feel let down by God in some way. Or to feel resentful against God. Or just distant. Or dry. Or discouraged. 
or disillusioned. Now, sometimes you can trace it back and, and see a fairly obvious cause. Physical tiredness. We're just not living a healthy lifestyle. Going to bed too late. Not exercising. That's going to have all sorts of knock-on effects after a while, isn't it? Maybe this new year just gone by it was a moment where you decided to take some action on one of those kind of fronts. Saturation in the world. The, the people we're surrounded by, the, the Netflix diet we're feeding ourselves, that is what's strangling our spiritual joy, perhaps. Difficulties in life which are leaving us pressurized on every front, tricky circumstances at home or, or at work or, or, or among our friends. Lack of regular and meaningful fellowship with fellow believers. Dabbling in sin and getting stuck in bad habits. Or just allowing a, a lukewarm attitude to spiritual things to become normal and unchallenged. Again, that's what's going to bring us low after a while. Any of those sound familiar? As I say, it's sometimes it's easy to trace the roots of spiritual despondency to something fairly obvious. And it is worth doing that, or at least trying to do that if you can, isolating the issue, making the effort to understand why and, and how you feel the way you do, because some of those things obviously you, you can address head on, can't you? I want to suggest though that often at base it's one of two things deep down which are strangling us. The first is just a lack of God's word flowing into us. A Christian is like a lake. We, we, we need to have a steady source of water coming into us, a river, a stream, something like that. Without that, we just dry up. I saw in the news recently that uh, the Great Salt Lake of Salt Lake City fame is apparently having all its inlets being diverted to farmland, to water the crops and so on. And so what's happening? Well, inevitably, the lake is just slowly but surely drying up. We're the same. No word of God flowing into us on a regular basis. No regular reading and, and meditating on the Bible. And we will dry up. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But someday. A second thing, though, that often strangles joy is a wrong expectation of how God is working in the world and in our lives in particular. Act 2 of Elijah's story here helps us with both. So, Act 2, the Lord's servant renewed. If Elijah feels he's just been taken apart by circumstances, what we now see is God putting him back together again. In what way? Well, to begin with, where the servant of God, you remember, felt exhausted, God now gives provision. End of uh, verse 7, an angel turns up. Get up and eat, he says. 
Elijah turns round and there's some bread and water. Not exactly a feast, is it? But it's adequate for what he needs. When the angel comes back again, it's the same thing all over again. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Journey? What journey? Well, read on, verse 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. With Moses, it was manna for 40 years. Now it's just this, for 40 days. But, but it's enough. The feast would have been nice. But it's the old line again, isn't it? God provides for his people's needs, not their greeds. I wonder if that's your expectation. Strength for the journey ahead is what God's servant gets. Nothing more, but nothing less. We get what we need for the path ahead. And then again, where the servant of God felt terrified by Jezebel's threat, God now encourages him by his presence. Elijah makes it to Horeb, it collapses for the night in a cave, but then receives warning of something extraordinary about to happen. Verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You know, what a thing, a, a flyby of God himself, just like what Moses had. In fact, in the very same place that Moses had it. Up to now, it's been um, Queen Jezebel who's been looming large in his thoughts, filling his horizons. But now, what will the Lord do? He will overlay the canvas of his inner eye with another picture altogether. Himself. That won't be a full-on face-to-face meeting. That'd be too much for Elijah or anybody else. It'll just be passing by. And in fact, as it turns out in verse 13, Elijah will have to cover his face. God will be present, but it'll be a hidden presence. Again, it's worth asking us ourselves, what are our expectations of seeing God in the here and now? We know he's with us, but at this stage we see by faith, not by sight. Isn't that right? But there's more. Where the servant of God felt spiritually abandoned, God now speaks to him. Though you notice he does so fairly unspectacularly. <laughs> In the past, uh, God had form for speaking at times of drama. As I said earlier on, uh, earthquakes and uh, wind and, and fire, that's how it was with Moses, wasn't it? Back in Exodus chapter 19. But how does he speak now? End of verse 12. Just a gentle whisper. In fact, what does the whisper say? Well, the focus doesn't seem to be on what is said, but on how it's said. It's, it's almost as though God is speaking to us today, speaking to us who long for spectacular miracles and demonstrations of his power so everyone will have to believe, and saying to us, no, that, that, that's not for now. You've had all the spectacular performances you need. Let's face it, you've had the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't need more. You just need to pay more attention to the word I've already spoken to you and to draw the attention of those around you to it. 
It's an unspectacular word. Keep going, though, because also where God's servant felt isolated, God provided just a single co-worker. Verse 14, Elijah complains about being friendless. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. What's God's reaction? It's to make an appointment. Actually, three appointments. Uh, Two kings, a king of Aram, that's Syria, and a king of Israel. But but one appointment of a fellow worker. End of uh, 16, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Moses had Joshua. Elijah gets Elisha. And in fact, the chapter ends with the apprentice actually taking up his post. Last words of the chapter. He, Elisha, set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. Of course, it would have been great to have a whole team, wouldn't it? That would be the dream few hundred even. Israel's a big place. But at this stage, it's just one co-worker God gives. It's a good lesson to remember. God can be relied on to give the support that's required for the spiritual task that we have. One partner in the work of the gospel. That's all we need. And then finally, where God's servant felt despairing, God gives a commission. Though it is a mixed commission. Elijah does have a future. There is work to be done, but it's a mixed work. Part of it is actually being an agent of God's judgment. That's a terrible thing, but with Israel determined to reject their God, they will find in turn that God rejects them. Elijah has the task of making sure that judgment is played out. Let's talk here of the sword. It's not all negative. Look at verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to, to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. Sounds like Elijah will have a role too in in upholding those who are faithful to God. Like Moses bringing judgment to Pharaoh and Egypt and salvation to Israel. Elijah will have that same kind of twin role. As in a sense might we. As we bring the good news of Jesus to people around us, what happens? Some get repelled, don't they? And yet others... Attracted. We need to expect both. The Lord's servant then is renewed as God enters the frame and resets expectations for what lies ahead. And I wonder if we, as we start off this new year, I wonder if some of us at least might need expectations getting reset in a similar sort of way. Let me suggest three challenges then, beyond what we've already seen, for servants of God today. First, get real. Get real. Get real about what you expect of God, not just this year, 2020, but in this whole age 
the age before Jesus comes back. Yes, God will be at work in and around you, but often it will be in quiet ways. Yes, he will work dramatically, but only sometimes. Yes, he will answer your prayers, but only when it's for your good or his own glory. And often only after we've prayed and waited many times. Yes, God might speak to us spectacularly, but usually he speaks simply by his Spirit, working through his word. And yes, God may shower us with blessings, food and friends and fulfillment and so on, but sometimes he withholds those for our growth, for his wider purposes, and so on. Get real about what you expect of God in this coming year. Or you may find yourself coming completely unstuck, discouraged, even destroyed. You wouldn't be the first. It's a well-worn track for spiritual optimists. Get real. At this stage, we walk by faith, not by sight. Second, Get ready. Get ready. Despite everything I've just said, (laughs) one day we will be absolutely caught up in the glory of God. And we will see face to face. We've noticed already the parallels between Elijah and Moses. Well, one day the two would actually meet. Do you remember? At least in a manner of speaking. You can read about it in Mark chapter 9. The the transfiguration, as we call it. And when they do when they, when they do meet, the purpose of that meeting is what? It seems to be to draw attention to the glory of Jesus. And one day we'll see that glory for ourselves. We'll know in full, and not just in part. There'll be an end to fear and exhaustion and friendlessness and distance from God, and everything else. There'll be no need then to moderate expectations. We have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. I, for one, can't wait. And then third, get serious. Get serious. Did you hear what drove Elijah on? Verse 14, I've been very zealous for, for what? The continuing rehabilitation of Pompey in English football? The new iPhone? My work? My study? My family? For the Lord Almighty? I wonder if that zeal for God's name is something we're familiar with. I wonder if we care about it as much as Elijah clearly did. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, used to wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, worrying about those who hadn't heard about Jesus. It would wake him up. So deep was his concern 
What a thing it would be if the Lord's servants today were to get that serious, feel that sense of burning interest, concern, anxiety even, about the honor of the Lord. Will you get serious about it? As we begin this new year? Why don't we take a moment of quiet? Ask God to convict us where we need convicting, to encourage us where we need encouraging. And I'll lead us in a prayer. I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer is, among other things, that this year that comes would see that zeal for you and for your name take root in our hearts. Please would you keep us from unrealistic expectations Keep us from a lack of excitement about what is to come and a a wrong sense of timing about when your spectacular presence will show itself to us. Uh, Keep our heads in the glory of Jesus that we'll see in the future, but in the task for spreading his fame in the here and now. Please, would your word be flowing into us this year, keeping us from dryness, keeping us from despondency, awakening in us that excitement about what is to come and that seriousness of the commission we're given. We ask it now for the glory of Jesus. Amen.